Hello and welcome to the Future of Australia podcast. Here I interview the entrepreneurs running the fastest growing businesses in Australia. These interviews will be around the themes of entrepreneurship, new ideas, business, innovation, capitalism and successful enterprise being the motor that will drive Australia forward. I will be telling the stories of the people who are making it possible and as they grow and strive further will become a bigger and bigger part of Australia's future. My name is Derek Stewart, your host and the founder of Future of Australia. Check us out at futureofaustralia.com to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter, get exclusive content and ensure you never miss an episode. For questions or comments, email me at derek, D-E-R-E-K, at futureofaustralia.com or you can call or text me on 0404-689-897. Welcome to episode 16 of the Future of Australia podcast. In this episode, I interview Steve Glaveski, the founder and CEO of Collective Campus, a corporate innovation accelerator that grew 42% last financial year to do $1.33 million in annual revenue. We discuss how he got sick of the corporate world and decided to start his own business, how he turned the lessons learned running that business into a corporate innovation accelerator, as well as several spin-off businesses helping large corporates all over the world, entrepreneurs and children as young as 7 years old to unlock their full potential. To get a copy of his newly released book, Employee to Entrepreneur, visit www.employee2toentrepreneur.io. All right, I'm here with Steve Glaveski, the CEO and founder of Collective Campus. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thanks, Derek. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, so can you give us a bit of background about where you sort of started work-wise? What did you study? What were your early jobs and companies that you worked in and what sort of roles? Yeah, well, how far back do we want to go? Because uh, as, as, as a 14-year-old, I started working at Target okay, uh, yeah. in High Point, but I, I, won't, I won't bore your <laughs> listeners with that. Um, I think what you're probably really asking me is what was my... When did my real career kick off? <laughs> and um, having studied a Bachelor of Business and a Master's in Accounting, I'd say it really kicked off with my initial um, gig over at the Victorian Auditor General's office as mm-hmm. a financial auditor. Um, that then opened the door to a consulting gig with Ernst & Young um, and KPMG and also some time with um, Macquarie Bank's Risk mm-hmm. Management Unit over in Sydney. So I spent close to a decade uh, in the corporate world um, in various consulting roles, mostly with a focus on financial services. Um, but despite having what you might call some of the trappings of success, despite having a six-figure salary in my late 20s and a lot of the um, trappings such as your business class flights around the world and corporate Mm. junkets emceed by none other than TV's Rove McManus and things like that, (laughs) deep down I was comfortably miserable Um, and I found myself standing on the train station platform at the end of the day really questioning what did I do today, Mm -hmm. what did I contribute. I felt as if I was just working to help uh, listed companies comply with their SEC obligations um, and nothing more and I wanted I, I felt like I had a hell of a lot more to give and that's when I started to 
explore entrepreneurship essentially. And was the initial idea when you were studying at university that you're going to work in big corporate and was that what you set out to do or did you just fall into that because most people think big four, banking, accounting, law, investing and sort of just drifted there unconsciously? Yeah, I'd say it's semi-consciously in the sense that I think I was just looking to satisfy what society's conventions of success were, looking to satisfy what my parents' Uh, conventions of success were as well and and that was often conflated with working for a big company wearing a nice suit and tie making a decent paycheck and just climbing the corporate ladder Um, i think a lot of us do that unconsciously Mm -hmm. because we look around and that's what everyone else is doing they're playing that game so ergo we should play that game as well uh and i think it takes a certain amount of reflection um soul searching and and courage to actually question that and also take action um in an opposite direction and did you enjoy that for a while? I know some people, again, sort of get into that world and from day one they almost want to get out, but it takes them quite a while to build the escape plan. Did you enjoy it in the first couple of years and then the novelty wore off or, or were you sort of hating it from day sure. one? Um, I think initially I just accepted that this is the way it is and tried to make the best of the situation. Um, I didn't really consider entrepreneurship as a viable alternative when I first started working, say, at the Auditor General's office when I was in my early 20s. Um, would would I have seen uh, an alternative well the question really is did I enjoy it yes um, I did enjoy it perhaps for the first five years for a number of reasons firstly the learning mm-hmm. I'd say there are so many transferable skill sets that I picked up during my first say five years in the corporate world around interpersonal skills communication negotiation understanding how those big companies work how they make decisions how they buy things they're all really valuable skill sets mm. particularly if you're like me now and you have a business that's working with such companies it makes it much easier to um do deals with them. Um, not only that, but in terms of a big organization like an Ernst Young with an average age of about 31, uh, uh, play, uh, work hard, play hard sort of lifestyle um, and a lot of fun. Like mm. I said, corporate junkets and all that good stuff. Like it was <laughs> fun. But after a while, that novelty started to wear off. I felt like the learning curve um, tapered off as well. So it was very steep initially and then it just tapered off real quickly. And then I found myself playing a lot more politics and spending a lot of time in meetings than actually moving the dial on anything um, productive or any sort of value creation. And I guess it's at that point that I decided to explore alternatives. But there was definitely um, a lot of value for the first few years. Um, And that's something I talk about in my um, forthcoming book, Employed Entrepreneur, where entrepreneurship doesn't necessarily need to be the only thing you pursue. Um, So long as your current job is giving you a a sense of autonomy, it's giving you the opportunity to continue learning um, and you really believe in what the organization does, it's paying you well, of course, then you probably don't have good enough reason to pursue entrepreneurship unless you really want to do something fundamentally different that isn't possible within the four walls of the organization you find yourself in. Yeah, and even, I mean, a lot of the companies you've named, other big companies now even have entrepreneurial sort of uh, sub-companies, I guess, that within them, you know, their own accelerator programs within these large companies. So sometimes even within a big company, there's entrepreneurial options um, yeah. to an extent. To an extent. So some companies have genuine entrepreneurial options internally if they're running accelerator programs or incubators or uh, corporate venture capital arms and things like that. Oftentimes, though, what you'll find is a lot of those programs amount to innovation theater Mm. um, and people will join them thinking that the organization will give them an opportunity to be entrepreneurial. 
come year one, year two, they realize that it's not all it's cracked up to be from the outside looking in. Mm. And then they leave in, in pursuit of genuine entrepreneurial opportunities elsewhere. So I think big companies are slowly moving in that direction and we're helping a lot of them with that. But I think they still have a long way to go to really break the shackles of that culture and um, that inertia that comes with the, the, the organization's that they've developed over, say, decades and decades. Mm. It's not easy to change that overnight and move from, say, um, avoiding risk and outsourcing accountability to steering committee meetings to just making a decision and moving forward. Mm. Like Moving from uh, consensus to commitment is something that a lot of big organizations struggle with because they want to control all of the decision-making. Yeah, so, so I guess that's an interesting point. Um, so have, what are the other the things, like you said, kind of having a split management culture, I guess, in a sense, because, again, a small, um, high-risk, new idea startup is very different than, a, you know, ASX 200, yeah. 100-year-old sort of legacy traditional company with quarterly earnings calls. Mm-hmm. Apart from that management split, what other things do you think is the difference between a big corporate that might run a successful accelerator and, and sort of, again, invest in companies or develop um, allow people to run companies within the company versus one that sort of again pays lip service to it but doesn't actually get anything out of it yeah I think the big thing really is companies who aren't legitimately serious about it will just run isolated initiatives mm-hmm. um, like oftentimes it could amount to running design thinking sprints um, and coming up with lots of ideas but not having a next step in place around time and funding to turn those ideas into prototypes mm. and do some testing and start to actually look at commercializing those ideas. Um, not only that, but the step before that really is about the underpinning culture, systems, values, resources, processes. Like if you teach people how to apply the lean startup methodology, mm-hmm. but if they then have an idea and they need to complete a business case that's 20 pages long, it needs to get signed off by several people in order to get access to say $50,000 to test your idea. That is... Uh, flying in the face of everything the Lean Startup is about. Mm. The Lean Startup is about, well, give me $100 so I can run some quick, cheap, dirty, effective prototypes or tests, learn what I need to learn and base the next investment decision, which could just be an extra $500 as a milestone in terms of uh, supporting an environment where you're taking as many bets as possible rather than few large ones. Um, So organizations who are serious about this actually look at their processes, their systems, their values and start iterating on that um, towards an organization that does support the, uh, the behaviors that support innovation. Um, some organizations will create parallel processes because you might very well need your current uh, systems to help you deliver on the existing repeatable business model. And that mm-hmm. makes sense because that's where you make money today. If you're an ASX 200 company with shareholders you're accountable to, you've got a, a duty to them to continue mm. making money and paying them their dividends and hopefully the share price keeps going, keeps tr- tracking an upwards trajectory. Mm. But at the same time, you've also got a duty to them to not drop the ball three, five, seven years from now and explore um, that sort of Horizon 3 disruptive innovation. Um, and to do that, you need other procedures. For example, if I have an idea, I can get access to $100 to, to run a test rather than having to go through the business case process. If it is an idea that is that falls, say, into the bucket of Horizon 3 disruptive mm. innovation. If it's about incrementally improving what we already do, then that will go through, say, your initial or so through your existing processes. Yeah, so, so just to circle back a bit to your own journey. So you were, like you said, your learning curve topped out, you're becoming dissatisfied, probably a bit bored with the lifestyle once the novelty wore off. Yeah. Um, you've seen it, done it, like you said, dragged into meetings. When did you hit the point uh, when you realized you didn't want to do that sort of big corporate world anymore? And what was your first sort of step? 
uh, to, to get out of that. Yeah, so without naming names, uh, it was when I was working for a, a large organization and I just joined this organization and I remember it vividly day one I walked in and I just my heart just dropped when I saw how sterile the place looked it looked mm-hmm. like something out of a George Orwell novel very dystopian <laughs> as if everybody was just there to play a role and not think or contribute anything different yeah. to the organization and sitting in that chair was just for me very soul sucking on a day to day basis and that's when I really started doubling down on exploring entrepreneurship that's when I started investing two to three hours every night after work um, on my initial uh, startup uh, or foray into entrepreneurship called Hot Desk, which was a essentially an Airbnb for office space, mm-hmm. um, pitting underutilized office space with freelancers, mobile workers, and startups. Uh, that was really it. And I think um, you can tie that back to what a lot of people say, like uh, Robert Greene, the author of The 48 Laws of Power, who says you need to be really frustrated mm. before you start seeking out alternatives or even go back two millennia to the likes of Plato uh, in his book uh, The Republic, in which he says, no philosophy before 30 because you haven't been through enough <laughs> shit. Can I say that? Sorry. You haven't been through enough to really seek out those answers to, to the bigger questions. Mm. Um, and like myself, like it just got to a point where I decided I couldn't do it anymore. And even Steve Jobs said the same thing. You know, if you wake up too many days in a row, look in the mirror and tell yourself that I don't want to do what I'm going to do today, it's time to make a change. And, and that, was, that was the time for me. Yeah, and I think that's a good point because sort of the hardest thing is actually if things are okay. Like if things are really awful, like you said, you're, you're highly motivated to this sucks, want to get out. Yeah. If things are awesome, they're awesome. But when things, some people I think, or a lot, are trapped in that middle where it's not good, it's not bad, mm-hmm. but it's not bad enough to, to drive the pain that drives the, the change and reflection. Yeah, and, and that can be, uh, it's a bit paradoxical in a way because you might be comfortable and okay and happy with work, but the way the world is going it may mean that you'll find yourself without a job in five or ten mm. years time as more and more gigs get automated um, and then you may find yourself without the skill set and mindset to really survive in a new economy mm. um, it's not so much just about being able to execute on a set procedure because an algorithm could do that for you but it's about being adaptable um, about that critical thinking and problem solving that comes with being an entrepreneur um, which is one of the reasons we set up say the lemonade stand program so we could teach kids to be more adaptable and challenge the status quo because it's not enough to just study English numeracy, uh, science um, at a very high level and expect that it will set you up for mm. life. And we see stats around, say, accountancy. Uh, NPR published a report that found that accounting and audit has a 95% chance of being automated in the next 10 to 15 years. So while you may be comfortable in your current role, maybe ask yourself those big questions. Is my role repeatable? Is it rudimentary? Is it process-oriented? If so, there's a very high likelihood that it will be automated. And then perhaps ask yourself, well, if it is automated, what can I do instead? Mm. What skill sets and transferable skills have I obtained? And have I obtained enough? Or should I be looking at um, upskilling in certain areas as well? Because the world's going to change very quickly, and I'm not sure a lot of people realize that. And that's also why you get that inertia in a lot of big companies who Mm. don't really invest in innovation because they currently they're doing okay. Share price is doing okay. Mm. Uh, Companies making money. But it doesn't take long for that uh, picture to change very, very quickly. Yeah, so they're sort of stuck in that same middle I was talking about, where they're comfortable enough, they're hitting their targets, but they're not doing anything revolutionary, they're not accelerating past their targets, but they're not unprofitable. So they think, well, what's wrong with what we've got? But like you say, when the world shifts, that's when suddenly they sort of fall off. Yeah, and real quickly, just on that point, that's what Jeff... That's why Jeff Bezos always says in his shareholder uh, letters every year, it's always day one at Amazon mm. because day two is characterized by um, 
complacency, uh, boredom, uh, entitlement. And that's when you stop really asking those bigger questions and trying to really challenge the status quo and push yourself. Mm. It's just, okay, we're comfortable. Let's just keep doing this. And, and, I, and I feel that that's what a lot of people fall into, say, in the corporate world, where they do become comfortable, miserably comfortable, but mm. they've got their mortgage and uh, they've got their financial commitments and the lifestyle that they've developed. And so they just keep doing a job that they hate in order to keep uh, paying what they need to pay to maintain this mm. comfortable lifestyle. Yeah, it's a really good point about education, which we'll circle back to. But so you're unhappy in the big corporate job. What made you think entrepreneurship instead of, you know, a different job, a smaller company, you know, a different type of business, different working arrangement? What drew towards entrepreneurship specifically? Uh, So people are drawn to entrepreneurship for different reasons. In my case, I think it was a big part of it had to do with uh, accountability to authority figures that Mm -hmm. perhaps didn't sit well with me, uh, particularly because I found that a lot of people that I was accountable to, I didn't think were in those positions because they were better suited to the role or smarter or more intelligent, but because they'd been in the company longer. Um, And I didn't really like that. I think you should promote people based on merit, not Mm -hmm. based on uh, age or or loyalty. Uh, And so I also found that from a young age, I was always quite creative. I wanted to do things differently. So the, the desire for freedom and autonomy, plus the desire to create, uh, which I was not getting the opportunity to do in the, in the corporate world, mm-hmm. those two things basically came together um, and gave me the impetus that really drove me forward to explore entrepreneurship. Yeah, and so you had this idea, like you said, sort of renting the unused space mm-hmm. in large offices and large buildings yep. to freelancers, small businesses, creatives who you know don't want to take a five-year lease with you know, a 12 month deposit yeah. and 12 month advance. Um, they just want to rent a desk, which now is a very common thing with yeah. big, you know, um, serviced offices and, and things like WeWork, but I'm sure back then it wasn't really being done. So how did that go when you first had that idea? Yeah. So, uh, just on that, I mean, for anybody listening who perhaps wants to jump out of the corporate world, it's a bit of a case study on the fact that you don't necessarily need to make that jump before mm-hmm. you are ready or you, before you are financially, uh, once you've got, a company or an investor that bankroll you because what happened in my case was I built a prototype uh, using an Airbnb script and a developer that I found on freelancer.com cost me a little more than $2,000 um, on the back of that prototype I basically googled how to write a press release um, and f- put to get, tried my hand at writing a press release <laughs> and then found about 100 emails of journalists through Twitter yep. I then proceeded to send 100 emails out to these journalists and of course only one got back to me after about two weeks of hearing nothing <laughs> Um, And it just so happened to be a journalist from The Australian. And they published a massive one-page feature article in the property section about the idea. Um, Of course, that got picked up in the Macquarie News. I was working at Macquarie at the time. And uh, my manager tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, Steve, what's this hot desk (laughs) stuff all about? And I had to assure him that it was a side project, which in many respects it was. But that article got the interest of some early-stage investors, uh, started having coffees and, and dinners and lunches and all that sort of stuff with them. And within three months... I'd raised one hundred fifty-six thousand mm-hmm. uh, dollars for Hot Desk, and that was my ticket out of the corporate world, at least for a year, to really double down and, and, and try. Um, and then that turned out to be a two-year journey with Hot Desk, where I had a lot of success building out the supply side to about thirteen, twelve thousand locations across Asia Pac. Mm. But the demand side was a lot trickier um, because one of the challenges with that marketplace platform, and a lot of entrepreneurs build marketplaces these days, most of them don't succeed. Um, in this case, it's you may be used as a referral platform. Uh, 
or a matching platform. So mm -hmm. if I'm looking for a co-working space, I'll use Hotdesk. But then if I book it for a day and I quite like it, I'll then negotiate directly with the, the, the vendor or the operator. So I miss out on that recurring revenue piece. It's not like Airbnb where if I book a space, say in San Francisco for a week, I quite like it. Oh, I think I'm going to buy this. It doesn't work that way with Airbnb. Like you're constantly mm. booking different spaces as you travel for business or, or pleasure. Um, so that was a challenge. But uh, I spent two years learning all about entrepreneurial methodologies, tools, techniques, frameworks, sales hacks, marketing hacks, growth hacks, you name it. Um, and then I identified, wow, this is diametrically opposed to how corporates work. <laughs> but they need this stuff because the world is moving much faster outside their walls than inside their walls. So eventually they're going to be left behind. And that's when I stumbled upon the idea of, well, teaching them about lean startup, teaching them about uh, human-centered design and, and all these concepts that I picked up. Um, and then slowly but surely, Collective Campus you know, evolved into, into the beast, shall I say, it is today. <laughs> so you originally, like you're saying, just the online platform, but keeping people on the platform, which even you know, eBay, they're constantly screening messages, right? Are you putting a mobile number? Are you yeah. putting an email? Because they don't want people, again, transacting off the platform yeah. and missing their, their sort of revenue stream in the transaction percentage. Um, so how did that pivot into now you've got your own facility, essentially, mm -hmm. and you incubate people in-house as well as running these sort of corporate workshops? Yeah, so there was a lot of serendipity along that journey. Um, I mean, Hotdesk was a tenant at Queen's Collective, and that's when I met my co-founder, Sean, uh, who ran Queen's Collective. Um, but around the time that General Assembly, who were basically a tenant here running workshops and marketing and, and whatnot for, for the general public, around the time that they said they're going to leave, I was winding down with Hotdesk because I came to the realization that I didn't want to be a glorified real estate agent, didn't really align with my true inclinations, mm -hmm. my strengths, my purpose. Um, and I approached Sean and said, look, you've got these free classrooms. I'm thinking about training corporates in the startup methodologies. How about we run a test together and potentially look to partner? And so initially it was literally just spending $100 on Facebook ads, setting up an Eventbrite page, mm -hmm. directing people to that page uh, through LinkedIn as well. Um, and getting about 50 RSVPs to our first session of which about five actually turned up <laughs> as you do you've got your seats all nicely aligned and your plastic cups and your food and your wine and three people five people turn up and <laughs> it is what it is but you start tweaking and experimenting mm. and, and that's something I picked up uh, in my early days as an entrepreneur you've got to be experimenting or always be testing as I like to say um, because you can't just keep doing the same thing day after day after day and expecting different results so nowadays you know at Collective Campus we've Worked with close to 60 big brands across the world, um, everywhere from London to New York to Dubai, Hong Kong, Melbourne, Singapore, and so on. Um, we've also incubated close to 100 startups and helped them raise about 25 million US dollars. And we, we started, we've started to spin off organizations too, uh, like Lemonade Stand, which is our children's entrepreneurship program. We've just turned that into an online platform that we'll be scaling through schools this year. And um, we raised just north of $2 million late last year for Concrete, Concrete with a K, which is... Um, a blockchain-enabled share registry, which is aiming to tokenize shares mm -hmm. uh, in order to make them more liquid. And you can start tokenizing all manner of assets um, through that platform. So that's something that really excites me. That's definitely not an opportunity I would have had in the corporate world to just spin off all these mm. different companies and explore lots of different things. Um, and yeah, that's essentially where we are right now. But at its core, it all comes back to that purpose of unlocking people's potential, uh, whether it's corporates, startups, or kids. Yeah, and so you've obviously done really well. You've made the Finna Review Fast Starters, being one of the 100 fastest growing new businesses, growing 42% last year and doing um, 
one and a third million in annual turnover. So what was that sort of sudden, again, like you said, you stumbled around a bit with the hot desk idea, the platform, you're sort of experimenting, transitioning, and then you sort of really hit your stride and had this rapid growth. What was that um, experience like? Yeah, uh, that experience, I guess it was definitely refreshing because the first year or so we only made about 100K. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, I had a part-time job over at KPMG two days a week to just support me while Mm -hmm. we got Collective Campus off the ground. I didn't pay myself anything for the first 12 months or so. Uh, But I think that rapid growth came from a couple of things. I mean, we spent much of that first year just speaking with as many people as possible, asking as many questions as possible and learning, not trying to sell off the bat. Like literally in the first six months, I had about 500 meetings with innovation managers, heads of HR, heads of IT, you name it, just learning. Um, And then we also asked ourselves, how can we differentiate ourselves from the competition? And one thing we landed on was content. And we've created north of 300 blog posts, about 15 eBooks. We've got a podcast with over 300 episodes. We've now got published book out there as well, um, bookstores across the world. That's the kind of stuff that has helped us to build this sort of inbound lead generation Mm -hmm. system where we're not chasing, we're just getting a lot of qualified warm leads coming in. And you know we get between three and five hundred of those a month, and that's really been the catalyst, I think, for a lot of our growth. Um, but then also being genuine, not trying to sell cookie cutter services to organisations, but really trying to understand their problems, their business models, whether or not we can legitimately help them, um, and if not, we'll be forthright in saying so because I don't want to waste my time um, doing stuff that doesn't add value. Uh, if all I want to do is get paid, then I would have stayed in the corporate world. So mm. unless I feel that there's value in my work, then I'm, I'd rather work with someone else. And, and how did you decide to focus so much on content? Like obviously there's a lot of upfront investment. Like I said, once you've got the asset and the audience, there's a big return, but yeah. it's that sort of slow build-up period. Was there someone you're inspired by? Was there some point where you realized that it had to be a content first sort of model? Uh, it's funny. I think paradoxically, in a way, probably started by virtue of my wasting time in a way where oh what can I do today maybe I'll write a blog post because <laughs> I enjoy writing yeah, but yeah. in retrospect writing a blog post perhaps wasn't the most value adding thing I could have done for the business at mm. the time but then after a while of doing this we had 50 blog posts and sharing these across different platforms and getting quite a bit of engagement and so I guess organically in a way we started thinking okay this is actually working let's do more of this when it in its embryonic state it was perhaps a uh, Procrastination. Procrastination. Yeah, procrastination. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I guess we stumbled upon that. But then the more we started doing, uh, the more I started doing in that space, the more I started researching about content marketing and how to effectively build, say, funnels mm. uh, to get people to download your content, to get onto your mailing list, and then how to send engaging content to get people to really resonate with your brand. Because if you're selling to big corporates, it's not like you're going to pick up the phone, give them a call, and within an hour, they're going to sign on the dotted line. Like, it may not be the right time. They may not have budget. They may not have appetite right now. But if you can continue to share that awesome content, whether it's podcasts, ebooks, blogs, and so on, when the time is right, when there is budget, your brand's going to be front of mind. Um, and you'll at least be in the mix when it comes to having a conversation about who they want to work with. And that's something that I really learned about this space because you can't expect to close deals in this space in a few weeks. Sometimes, uh, the, the, the sales cycle could be 12 to 18 months mm. long, um, which is why, again, you need to really cast a very wide net. Yep. And one thing that's helped us to do that is being really 
uh, cognizant of automation and outsourcing tools so that we can do a lot more than the number of people we actually are and also free ourselves up to focus on our strengths and where we can create the most value and do the work that we most enjoy because that keeps us coming back day after day after day. So what sort of aspects have you automated or what was one of the biggest things that freed up time or allowed for rapid or you know increased scale of distribution of content? Is yeah. it all the editing? Which part of the process sort of was oh, automated best? There's a number of different things. I guess one thing I would point to is um, some of our outreach campaigns mm-hmm. uh, so for example if somebody is mentioned in the media for a keyword like digital transformation or corporate innovation mm-hmm. that gets picked up by our system um, and they will automatically be sent uh, a personalized LinkedIn message that mentions uh, the company name the article they were mentioned in and will say something to the effect of hi Derek um, saw you were mentioned in the age mm-hmm. uh, on the topic of innovation keen to find out more about what your company is doing in this space Here's a link for a, to, to lock in a short 15-minute conversation. And that's personalized. It's targeted. It's timely. It's more likely than not to get a response. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because we have done a lot of work in this space, we're more likely than not to get a subsequent conversation on the back of that that's longer than 15 minutes. Um, and so some of our biggest deals have come through that tool uh, where it's just been flagged in our system, emails going off, uh, and they've picked up the phone. We've locked in a meeting, had a conversation, and sometimes within a few months, we've got the, the signature. Um, that, that's been massive for us uh, I would say it's probably one of the, the biggest things yeah. yeah I mean that's really interesting because I think a lot of people could see the manual version of that you have the Google alerts yeah. you know you, you pull out the things and then you go onto LinkedIn you look them up and then you send an email but I mean did you just build a custom sort of API that tied it all together or did you have a solution that yeah. sort of linked all that or how did that sort of process flow yeah, get it, put together initially it was uh, mostly using a outsource well a virtual assistant mm-hmm in the Philippines but over time we're able to use it to develop an API so mm-hmm. there's still a small manual component to that but I'd say 90% of it's automated um, and, and that's the thing but we're not just resting on our laurels like we've mm. uh, allocated a week at the end of this month in January to sit down and just revisit all of our processes uh, what have we started doing that can that is repeatable mm-hmm. what else can we outsource or automate and not only that but looking back on the stuff that we've already automated in some way are there better tools available um, a great example is uh, repurpose.io so if you record a Facebook live video mm-hmm. um, you can automatically turn that into a YouTube video podcast episode an audiogram and then posts on all the different social media platforms and even a transcript that you can then turn into a blog post mm. like, all with the click of posts on, on Facebook uh, whereas a lot of people will manually go off and rip the audio and transcribe it and yeah step by step and it could take them days to do that stuff and that's just one example one little small part Mm. of your business where you can save so much time but think about the benefits if you apply that across the entire business across your sales across your marketing Um, it's absolutely massive Um, and that's also one of the reasons I'm against this whole notion that entrepreneurs need to be working 80 hour weeks mm-hmm. I think if you're working an 80 hour week firstly you're not managing your time effectively and secondly you're not really working an 80 hour week you might be present mm-hmm. physically uh, 80 hours of the week but you know the research on the psychological research suggests that you can only really get into deep work for 4 to 5 hours a day mm. beyond that it's you start to decline very rapidly and so you might be present at your desk but the level of thinking um, isn't that critical uh, and so I published a Harvard Business Review article recently on this topic that I, I recommend people check out called The Case for the Six-Hour Workday, which talks about how you could go about 
building a culture where your people can actually work, say, nine to three. Mm. Uh, not every day, but when reasonable to do so. Yeah, so, so an area we've sort of covered, um, obviously you're a big reader, everything you do is sort of education, you're educating startups, you're taking people in, you're educating corporates, you're educating kids. What's your sort of overarching feeling about education? Um, people have a lot of different opinions on it, on it. We've sort of touched a little bit, like you said, when the world changes, a lot of people aren't ready for yeah. it. So what's your sort of philosophy around education for the, you know, the, a, a 10-year-old right now who's going to be in the workforce in, um, in the coming decades? But, you know, based on how school and education and university is currently done and based on what they're going to step into in, in you know, 10, 15 years' time... Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think our philosophy is grounded in this whole notion of learning how to, how to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you learn how you best learn, then you can learn anything. And if you can learn anything at any given time in a quick enough manner, then you become more adaptable. Uh, for example, if I want to learn a language, uh, I will break it down to the smallest components. Um, for example, words. Mm-hmm. And then I will look at the 20% of words that are used, say, 80% of the time. Um, I will then focus on those words and then look to, say, spend a week in that country applying it uh, once I have a reasonable grasp of those words. That way you're accelerating that learning curve um, more so than you would be if you tried to learn a language in the traditional way, uh, which I think would take you a hell of a lot longer. So by focusing on the 20% it's mm-hmm. going to give you 80% of the value, that goes a long way. Similarly, I, I do a hell of a lot of reading, but when I read, I don't just read the book and put it down because chances are I'm not going to retain 99% of what I read. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more so a case of highlighting turning those highlights into a blog post, uh, potentially sharing those learnings with my team, sharing it on, on my podcast. And by doing all of that, I'm much more likely to retain a much higher level, uh, a much higher amount of that content. Um, so when it comes to the education that we provide, particularly with kids as part of the Lemonade Stand program, who are from seven years old and upwards, it's really about uh, adaptability, critical mm-hmm. thinking, problem solving, because they're the skills that people are going to need. I mean, if you look at you know, Moore's law and the rate of change, the doubling of computing power every 18 months. Um, if you actually look at what that means, when you start with one and you double that every day for 30 days, you end up with 1 billion and 49 million. Um, so one meter doubled every day for 30 days, you end up walking around the world 26 times. Mm. Um, and Moore's law has been doubling at this rate since the 60s. And so we're now at this inflection point where technologies are going to have significant upheaval in a lot of industries and a lot of professions so while it was okay up until say 10 or 15 years ago to just train people to become a doctor become a banker become a lawyer become an accountant a lot of that stuff is process oriented and so if you've trained your whole life and you've built a mindset and philosophy around just doing a particular job and then suddenly the rug's pulled out from underneath your legs and you don't know what to do because you've never had to adapt to changing circumstances then you will find yourself struggling to to really uh, make ends meet in that sort of environment so a um, big part of that as well is build, training your mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing I, I tell a lot of the entrepreneurs I work with is you need to have a really healthy relationship with adversity and hearing no. Um, and one way you can do that is just by putting yourself outside of your comfort zone as often as possible. Um, and so for, for me, I do things like I try to do stand-up comedy. <laughs> you know, I try to surf. All sorts of things that yeah. really rock me out of my comfort zone where if I'm paddling out and I just keep getting knocked off my board... It's easy to just go back onto the shore and just sunbathe for, for a couple of hours and read a book, but it's much harder to say, okay, well, let's get back on the board and keep going. Mm. And then after 20 you know, minutes or so, I might be in a position where I can catch a wave and it's all the more rewarding when you've done that. So uh, I think a lot of our uh, education here is about helping people build a better relationship with adversity, 
becoming more adaptable, uh, learning how to learn. Because if you've got those at your core, it doesn't matter where the world goes, mm -hmm. you will be in a position where you can navigate um, that uncertainty. Yeah, and I think that's really true um, because you can't predict it, but things will change. So yeah. the best way to prepare is to be able and willing to change. Exactly. And, and how do you find, a, you know, when you obviously in the, you give this message to a seven-year-old mm -hmm. in your uh, junior program and a 47-year-old who's been, you know, quarter century in the corporate sort of universe, obviously talking at different levels and, and different themes. I'm sure the core themes are the same about yeah. learning and mindset and positivity yeah. and um, change. Mm -hmm. How are those reactions generally different from a young kid versus a you know really sort of um, senior executive who's been in the system a very long time? Yeah, so young kids, when we talk to them about the notion of using failure as a mechanism to learn, uh, they're on board with that. Uh, whereas, say, your 47-year-old, generally uh, struggles with that concept because mm. they've been raised their entire lives to be told to have the right answer and if you get the red cross that's bad you, you've got to have the right answer all the time and that's something our education system that's something that's broken about our education system standardized testing where that just to me tests a child's ability to do the reading and then recall it in an exam situation it doesn't really test their ability to think critically um, to come up with new novel solutions which is really the kind of thinking you're going to need going forward having said that some people who are in their 40s, 50s, and even 60s who have attended some of our workshops, they have these light bulb moments when we talk them through the kinds of stuff we do. Some of them have been frustrated mm. uh, employees at big organizations for long just playing politics and just wanting to break out of that. Um, and, but one thing we also need to be cognizant of is the fact that some of us have biological predispositions towards taking risk. Mm. Some of us don't because that fight or flight detecting part of our brain, the amygdala, some people their amygdala lights up like a Christmas tree whenever they're assessing risk. Mm. Whereas other people, it doesn't quite light up the same way. Um, so uh, the University of Sydney published a report which found that you either have a red brain, which is uh, risk averse, mm -hmm. or a blue brain, which likes to take risks and is more inclined to being an entrepreneur. And generally, managers at large organizations, successful ones, have a red brain because it's just about managing the status quo, mm. doing what we've always done before. Um, having said that, you can always change your behavior by changing your environment. So if I don't want to um, eat that bag of Doritos at 9 p.m. in the evening, well, it's going to be much easier not to do that if I haven't got that bag of Doritos in my house. Of course. Uh, so change your environment and change your behaviors by, by virtue of that. Yeah, and what so it sounds like the kids really enjoy it because, again, you're telling what they're doing, maybe their natural instincts are sort of right. Um, how do the parents and teachers sort of react? Or, mm -hmm. again, maybe not always your clients because they're the ones who are on board with it and coming to you, they're reading your content. But say you're at a barbecue, you're talking to a parent, you're talking to a teacher, you're talking to someone, again, who's not fully on board with your philosophy about what you do and with kids and yeah. what's their reaction to it? Yeah, I think a lot of people just don't do the reading to know where the world is going. Like they are in that okay position. Mm -hmm. And so for them, it's just about going to school, getting good grades, getting that job. Uh, they don't realize that kids need to learn to be more adaptable because say, like I said, a lot of professions are up for automation. I think when people have uh, the knowledge, uh, that the requisite knowledge about what's happening in the world, they actually take to it. They're like, that's awesome. I love what you're doing. And a lot of people misinterpret what we do as just a business school where we teach kids about financial reports and, <laughs> and things like that, like in good old-fashioned business management stuff that you would have learned in, in high school, which is not it at all. I think there's a lot of business management for kids, which is all about taking an existing business and this is how you manage it, here's how you make money, here's what your costs are going to be. Whereas what we look about, what we look at isn't how to deliver on an existing business, it's how to discover a new business. 
which is where all those um, critical traits like questioning, observing, networking, experimenting uh, come into, into play and being adaptable and having a relationship with adversity. So I'd say it's a mixed bag in terms of the reactions that we get from parents and teachers. Um, and that reaction is very much a byproduct of where those people are themselves in terms of their exposure to these concepts and exposure to things like Moore's Law and really understanding where the world is going. So you'd say a lot of them would probably just think that sort of you're maybe a bit of a doomsday, you're predicting oh, everything's going to change. Is that how they say it? Everything's going to be outsourced? They say, no, no, what we're doing is fine, no need to change it. You know, is that sort of the reaction or is it they're just completely not absorbing sort of what you're saying and how it's, um, yeah. what you're trying to teach? No, I think the, more often than not, it's a positive reaction. Mm-hmm. One, one thing that we do get though is, oh, 10-year-olds learning about business they should be having fun. They should be outside playing, you know, climbing trees and stuff <laughs> like that. And firstly, yes, they should be outside playing and having fun. They're not because I don't see many kids <laughs> out on the streets riding their bikes anymore. Yeah. They're all in their iPads yeah, uh, yeah. and they're just consuming content. So mm. what we're doing is, hey, they're going to be on their iPads and on their devices anyway. They may as well learn how to create and mm. produce rather than just consume. And by virtue of that, learn all these transferable skills that are going to help them going forward. Um, and if they can also help them build confidence in themselves. For example, we've had kids come through the program who are making more than $1,000 a month, and we're talking 10-year-olds here. Mm. The confidence that they develop in themselves to do awesome things just you know, amplifies by an order of magnitude, particularly when they've got analytics on their websites and they can see that people from different countries have visited their websites. That's huge for them. That's like a massive aha moment. Um, so, yeah, um, kids should be outside playing but they should also be getting better prepared for for the uncertainty that's coming their way and not only that but it's fun like mm. it's fun to build a business and 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 make some money and have that sort of uh financial you know uh, freedom in your own life as a 10 year old as a 13 year old whatever it is um and learning how to code learning how to create uh branding materials and all that sort of stuff like it's it's a lot of fun and we see kids who perhaps don't thrive in a normal school setting mm-hmm. uh, where it's very process-oriented or regimented actually come to life in this space because they do have a lot more freedom. Um, and that may go back to their predispositions as kids, how they best learn and what sort of environment they thrive in. And entrepreneurship gives them a little bit more freedom than what they would in, say, a maths class mm. where there is only one right answer and, and that's it. So what's an example of like some of the issues? So you said 10-year-olds... 13-year-olds that are making money, are they doing, they learn how to code and they're doing freelance jobs? Are they um, drop shipping something? Yeah. e-commerce? What, what's a, what are some of the range of, you know, kid businesses that yeah. you've had students? So during our Lemonade Stand program, they tend to focus on some more sort of out-of-the-box disruptive ideas like a Netflix for video games and things of that, nat- that uh, nature. But once they come out of the program, uh, we push them more towards stuff that's going to get them some quick wins so mm-hmm. they can start to build confidence in themselves. And that is very much dropshipping. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of our students built a website where he's selling inflatable water sports gear uh, and we actually bought a paddle off his site, which is up in the wall <laughs> here at Collective Campus, just to remind us as to why we do the kind of work that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that way, by focusing on the quick wins, and it's the same sort of stuff we teach uh, executives at big organizations like focus on the quick wins first get the buy-in and confidence from senior executives and then that's going to give you the freedom to do more disruptive stuff uh, so that's very much where we focus but again bringing it back to the the, the the value of really understanding the customer problem solution 
Uh, how are you different? And a lot of those questions that many first-time entrepreneurs don't think about, like how are people currently solving this problem? Mm. Usually when you ask an entrepreneur that question, they'll give you 10 or 15 answers. And then you ask, well, how are you different? And mm. oftentimes their answer isn't really substantial enough because people may have problems, but nine times out of 10, they're happy with how they solve the problem at the moment. So that's something that we try to drill into kids as well. And one other thing is also just developing that really healthy relationship with being wrong, but small failures. Because there's a difference between dropping $100,000 in an idea and failing and dropping $100 and learning something mm. and then slowly iterating. Doing that a thousand times exactly. and making money on the way. Yeah. Exactly. All right, so, so we've covered you know, kids, the school system, big corporates. So moving aside to sort of entrepreneurs, what do you see sort of entrepreneurs in Australia doing well mm. um, and then maybe where are sort of areas for improvement and growth where they're not doing so well? Yeah, so I think the ecosystem has come a long way in the last five years. Um, there's countless incubators, accelerators, uh, there's several hundred million dollars worth of venture capital available now. There are government uh, entities like you know, Launch Vic here in, in, in Victoria, and I think it's Startup New South Wales in New South Wales that's really trying to galvanize the community. So there are communities, there are networking events, meetups, all that sort of stuff. So that foundation, I think, is there. Um, I think we are excelling in certain areas where we have a natural uh, sort of ecosystem. For example, maybe not natural, but we have an ecosystem such as, say, financial services. Mm-hmm. So up in Sydney, there is a massive fintech uh, movement. Um, I think there's a bit of an ag tech movement going on as well because Australia, agriculture, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have strengths in those uh, spaces. But one thing I find with Australian entrepreneurs is I feel it's more competitive and less collaborative despite the fact that we have all these things going on than it, than it could be. Mm-hmm. For example, I've been promoting my new book um, overseas in America and when I'm dealing with uh, people over there, they're very much about, oh man, you should talk to this person and that person mm-hmm. and I'm constantly getting linked up. Like my network over there is growing so fast. Whereas here in Australia, it's you don't really get that same sort of thing and maybe that's a byproduct of the fact that all we really have no, no disrespect to the other cities is Melbourne <laughs> and Sydney and they're 800 kilometers away from each other yeah. so perhaps not as many people know each other whereas in the States you know if you're from San Francisco you probably know people across that whole area you know San Jose and, and Menlo Park and everything else but you probably know people from LA there's a lot of ecosystems across the country where people are connected uh, to each other and I think that's something that we're lacking here and that could just be a geographical challenge that we may never overcome in, in a way uh, and that's one of the beauties of a town like Boulder, Colorado in the United States which has a population of 100,000 but it's able to punch way above its weight because vast majority of that population are in the startup ecosystem so it's very hard to go out to a cafe and not bump into an entrepreneur an investor, mm. someone in that space because you just have that density whereas Melbourne and Sydney, they're qu- quite a big urban sprawl as mm-hmm. well so yeah, you have little hop beds of innovation like Surrey Hills in Sydney and maybe Richmond in Melbourne but I dare say it's, it's nowhere near at the same level as somewhere like a Boulder, Colorado. Yeah, and I've heard the explanation in the, US, in the US a lot of people you know move into state for university mm. so they tend to travel they often move for work because there's so many different cities yeah. where I think a lot of people in Australia if they grow up some people might move from regional Victoria to the city to Melbourne but, yeah. but people often go to the local university because most people live in the cities and there's universities in all yeah. the big cities and they don't travel and, and transfer and they don't maybe live on campus and they don't get that same kind of US 
experience, mm-hmm. which I think then they come out of the workforce, they had roommates, they had friends, they had people from their hometown, they had people from their undergrad in, who are now in four different cities and they have a network in those four cities, yeah. whereas here people sort of grow up in Melbourne or Sydney, go yeah. to uni there and then work there and that's sort of their... Their hub. No, it's true. And I have to say, I'm watching a lot of those um, American movies growing up. I was always envious of the the college <laughs> dorm system. It's something that well, we may have here, but like like you said, you know, I just drove into university a mm. couple of days a week, and that was it. Yeah. So you didn't really have the same sort of cultural networking that you would have if you were on campus. Mm. Um, and so, what about um, other things you think? entrepreneurs are doing really well in Australia what gives you a lot of confidence you're teaching new entrepreneurs you're speaking to corporates that run accelerators you're talking to kids you're really immersed in this space and have your finger on the pulse what other things really sort of surprise you in a positive way about the entrepreneurship right now in Australia yeah within Australia um what surprises me I mean there are a lot of organizations raising capital a lot more so than say five years ago um in various domains, uh, you know, there are companies like Neuro Headphones who came out of the Melbourne Accelerator program. We've since raised five million dollars, and we've got fifty staff across the land or globally. So we're seeing some success stories come out of these accelerator programs. We've seen some massive success stories of the likes of you know Atlassian and Canva, who've mm-hmm. gone on to billion-dollar-plus valuations, which is very encouraging for the ecosystem here. Um, but there's, I wouldn't say there's any one thing that really stands out for me um, in terms of the ecosystem. You know, I've been all over the world and seen ecosystems in San Francisco, Berlin, Singapore, Hong Kong, London. Um, and more often than not, they have similar attributes, similar characteristics, like the failure rate of startups is still mm-hmm. up there, 95 96%. You have a lot of startups working on what really amount to non-consequential things that don't really mm-hmm. serve any greater purpose for society other than to make it more convenient to buy a donut, <laughs> something to that effect. Um, and I just think that there's so much room for improvement there around what people actually choose to focus on mm-hmm. and choosing to focus on businesses that create more value, create net value because you know, an Uber Eats is great, makes money, but it also means that more people just sit on the couch while they watch Netflix and just get fatter and fatter and less healthier. So <laughs> I'm not sure if there's net good for society there. Yeah, and it gets more and more complex. The bigger scale and the bigger um, these systems get. So looking back, um, what would you tell your sort of 20-year-old self, again, who's headed to sort of the majority popular path of big corporate um, stable sort of job, knowing what you know now and all the different work that you've done and, again, seeing kids. Or maybe a better question is what would you tell a 20-year-old now who's, again, everyone's pushing him towards big four, whatever industry he's in, yeah. and he's he or she is sort of uncertain about what to do and where to go with, like you said, all these changes, all these yeah. threats, all these disruptions? I would definitely um, channel the words of um, Robert Green, uh, who I had on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, who said, see your 20s as a apprenticeship um, and just try lots of different things. Um, like I think you come out of school, you know, at the age of 17, you're asked, what do you want to do with your life, right? Mm. You're supposed to pick something that you're going to study for the next three, three to four years and do that for the rest of your life, but that's flawed. Um, I think with the rate of change in the world, what you want to do is do as many things as possible during your 20s um, so you can learn what you like, learn what you don't like, um, and then by virtue of doing all these different things, you actually then are able to make connections and become more creative and come up with more novel solutions, which makes you more valuable. Um, it's it's similar to dating. Like you wouldn't go out and marry the first person you meet. Some people might, but a lot of people will date. They'll see what they like, what they don't like, and after a while, they're like, they'll meet someone. They say, "Yeah, this is this is the one." Because mm. 
you, you just know by that point. Um, but unless you've gone on that journey to try different things, you're probably not going to be very valuable. You're going to see the world through a very narrow sort of lens. Um, and therefore your decision making and everything else is going to suffer along with it. So don't feel like going into your 20s, you need to have all the answers and you need to rest your hat on a particular profession. Just be open to having fun, trying lots of different things. And by virtue of doing that, you put yourself in a much better position. So, yeah. Yeah, excellent. And so you've got this corporate facing training business. You're doing things with kids. You're building this big sort of media um, promotional arm as well in terms of your podcast. You've written a book. You've got it published through a big publisher. You're traveling all over the world. What, what does the next five to ten years for Collective Campus look like? Man, I don't know if I could even answer what the next ten years looks like. Uh, I think continuing to serve that purpose of unlocking potential to create impact, what that looks like, what the mechanisms, what the mechanism rather is to achieve that uh, may change over time. Uh, one thing we've already started to do over the last couple of years is just spinning off different companies, whether that was Lemonade Stand, whether that was Concrete. And I can see as we continue to build the business, that's probably something we'll do more of, where we identify an opportunity that's worth doubling down on, um, and then we'll invest in that opportunity, we'll test it, we'll build it out, and then once it gets to a certain point, we'll decide whether or not we want to commercialize and scale that. Um, I can see us doing a hell of a lot more of that and sort of becoming like a quasi-venture capitalist that actually builds our own products. That's something I really enjoy, and that's something where I feel I can add the most value because I'm, I find I'm more valuable during the first, say, year or two of a of a project, of, of a business's life, um, where there's a lot of unanswered questions, than I am once there is product market fit and it's just a matter of delivering. Mm-hmm. At that point, I get a little bit bored. So the more I can be leveraged during those early stages, the, the more impact I can create and the more successful hopefully those businesses will become. So, so bringing in these companies like you are now, or people with ideas into a shared um, positive space, giving them the advice, and then like you said, when something really starts to do well, really helping them be supported and sort of take off and, again, funnel funds or other support through yeah, them to... to a degree. I mean, we, we first incubate the ideas internally in mm-hmm. Collective Campus within our own team. Um, and then once we get the ideas to a certain point, then we'll bring in a team mm-hmm. to take those ideas further. But bringing in that team is always something you, you don't want to take lightly because there needs to be values alignment between that team, between our team and between... Uh, the, the product that we're actually building and what that's all about because if you don't have values alignment things can uh, come to a head very quickly okay and just one final thing so you've got the book um, that you've written can you talk a bit so a lot of people they do a blog post they even do a bit of podcasts or videos but getting a traditionally published book is obviously a different sort of beast altogether so what made you want to um, get a book and how did that sort of all work sure so I guess just on the back of all the work I've done with corporates a question I often get uh, by a lot of the people I work with is how did you go about doing it? How did you make the leap? I've got a lot of ideas. I don't know where to begin. I'm scared to make a mistake. I'm not sure if entrepreneurship is right for me. All that sort of stuff. And I was already blogging and, and self-publishing books anyway. So I thought, well, I may as well try and 10x this and get a book deal so mm-hmm. I can scale that message. Um, and on the back of interviewing a lot of authors on my podcast, I reached out to them and said, hey, can you give me some guidance on how to get a book deal? They gave me some advice, took that advice, and then started shopping it around. And like I said, having a positive relationship with adversity and knowing that I was going to hear no a lot before I got a yes mm. served me because I heard no from publishers and agents about 39 times before I got that yes. Mm. Uh, 
And that's essentially why I read the book, to help people who want to make that leap, to unlock their own potential to create impact. Because if I reflect on my own journey, you know, we've had a thousand kids come through the Lemonade Stand program. We've raised $25 million for 100 startups. We've worked with 60 big companies. We've created a lot of content that people have learned from, hundreds of thousands of downloads of our podcast. Like that is all value that I was able to create by leaving that world and empowering myself. But if I can help hundreds or thousands of people do the same thing, then mm. the flow-on impact of that is massive. Um, and that, again, is more fulfilling for me because I can, that's the kind of stuff that wakes me up in the morning with a spring in my step. And that's the kind of stuff that means, that's the kind of stuff that is the reason why I haven't had Monday-itis in at least five <laughs> years, right? So that's why the book exists. Um, and yeah, it's on bookshelves today, um, January the 9th, uh, worldwide and on Amazon as well. Excellent. And it's called Employee to Entrepreneur, How to Earn Your Freedom and Do Work That Matters. That's the one. All right. And just any final words or thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with? Uh, one thing I will leave the audience with is if you are an entrepreneur, if you're running a business, uh, perhaps just don't compare yourself to other companies. Uh, you know, Comparison is the thief of joy. Focus on learning, focus on growing your business and being better than what you were yesterday. Excellent. Thanks so much, Steve, for coming on the podcast. No worries, Derek. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. I would really appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend about it who you think may enjoy the content and get something useful out of it. Feedback, comments, likes or dislikes, you can reach me by emailing Derek, D-E-R-E-K, at futureofaustralia.com or you can call or text me on 404 689 897 Thank you.